Chapter 18 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C.M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 18 Without Our Dogs. Aunt Hannah was sitting by the fire one November evening, her mending basket by her side, her book open on the table before her. She would read a paragraph or a page, and then, while she neatly fitted a patch on a tablecloth or darned a stocking, she would think over what she had read. It took a long time to go through a book at this rate, but she did not always go through them. She read after her own peculiar fashion what suited her mood. Sometimes for days at a time it was history, then biography. She would even on occasion take a dip into a novel, although she declared she could sit and think over ever so many real stories that had as much romance and tragedy in them as could be found in any novel. She was fond of poetry, and read her husband's old, time-stained Milton, Young, Wordsworth, and Shakespeare, relishing them as she had not in her younger years, when her mind was more filled with household cares. There was another secret reason why she would have read these books. Nathaniel had feared she did not appreciate them, because in their early married life she had seemed to enjoy money-making far more than literature. So there always mingled with the reading a slightly remorseful feeling, as if she could hear his voice saying protestingly, Oh, Hannah, don't work all the time. We have minds and souls as well as bodies, and it is our duty to care for them, too. What a clod she had been in those days, to think that time and money spent on books were wasted, and had not known that Nathaniel was so rare a man until he was gone. If only she had improved those long winter evenings spent with him. He was so wise. But she must make it up now, and she would, too. He should know, when they met some morning in that other country, that she knew his books and had not lived the life of a drudge. John had told her about a certain literary society, and had sent her a set of the books. Ah, this was the very thing. She could be more systematic. Nathaniel was very systematic, and she feared it grieved him somewhat that she was not. Consequently, since the day her husband had gone out of this life into that mysterious other one, Mrs. Adams had been the very soul of system, except in her reading. She had not known exactly how to bring that under rules, and had gone on in the same old dulcetory way. Now here was a regular course of reading, certain books laid out for her that she must read with forty minutes a day to it. She could just about put in forty minutes in an evening. She winced somewhat at the idea of making out examination papers, but finally reminded herself that she had always been able to tell what she had read. Why could she not just as well write it down? So Aunt Hannah was fairly launched on a prescribed course of reading and felt exceedingly happy over it. One book looked especially appetizing, both from its title and appearance. She was glad that she was to begin on it this very evening. She would read the introduction. Nathaniel always used to. The very first few minutes spent on it sent a perplexed frown into her face as she read. There is not a creed which is not shaken, not an accredited dogma which is not shown to be questionable, not a received tradition which does not threaten to dissolve. More and more mankind will discover that we have to turn to poetry to interpret life for us, to console us, to sustain us. Without poetry our science will be incomplete, and most of that which now passes for religion and philosophy will be replaced by poetry. Our religion parading evidences such as those on which the popular mind now relies. The day will come when we shall wonder at ourselves for having trusted in them, and the more we perceive their hollowness, 
the more we shall prize the breadth and finer spirit offered to us by poetry. I want to know, Aunt Hannah exclaimed as she laid down the book and searched her basket for a patch of the proper size. Now, that is queer sort of talk. Speak for yourself, Mr. Arnold. I know of a creed that isn't shaken and doesn't threaten to dissolve, though it's as old as the world. What stuff and nonsense! I should like to see some poetry that would console one when all he had in the world was swept away, or that would sustain one when she laid a baby or a husband in the grave. I've been in all those spots myself, and I know what sustains. It's what passes for religion. The matter with this man is that he is talking what he doesn't know a mite about, same as if I should undertake to write a letter in Greek. It's a great pity they allowed him to get into this reading circle. It won't hurt such as me, but some young things will like as not read those words and say, Oh, that's the thing to believe, is it? And it will have an effect upon such. If I knew the man who got up this course of reading, I would write to him and ask him why in the name of all that's wonderful, when he had got up such a nice thing, he allowed Satan to put his word in through a foolish man who didn't know any better. I don't care how wise he is. He's a fool about the greatest things in the world, and the poor soul will find it out in a terrible way some day. He is the one that will find hollowness instead of us. May the Lord open his eyes. Aunt Hannah had so much food for thought while she sewed around her spacious patch that the book itself got no further notice from her that evening. Mingled with sorrow, that one should be so blinded, was indignation that such words could be printed and circulated, words of insult to her dearest friend. But then came that strange, exultant feeling, understood only by the devout disciple, and she could smile up into the face of her Lord with deeper content, with tenderer love, as if to say, Thou knowest, and I know, that the blessed truth lives and will live. Toward nine o'clock Peter returned from the post office and brought a letter. It was from John and his wife, beseeching her to come and visit them. "'We cannot see,' wrote Martha, "'what is in the way. Farms, it seems to me, do not do much in the winter but sleep, and you can surely trust Peter and Dorcas to care for everything when there is so little to be done. John says he wants to see you enjoy city life a while, as he is sure you will.' And really, there did seem to be no reason why she should not go. Aunt Hepsy had found the loneliness of the farm intolerable and had gone to spend the winter with a niece, who thought she was willing to put up with the aunt's peculiar infirmities for the sake of having some assistance in the care of her babies. Things in the parish, too, were now on a very good footing. Mrs. Adams and Simon Johnson had another interview not long after the one on that afternoon in May. She asked him to sign a paper that time. It was to raise a certain sum of money to send Mr. and Mrs. Brewster away on a vacation of six weeks. She also offered to pay Simon a nice sum if he would circulate the paper among the church people. This he did, and raised more money than was asked for. Then Mattie had come over for a few days from Belleville, and brought her patterns and fashion papers, and her taste, by means of which, and the aid of the country dressmaker, Mrs. Brewster's dove-colored cashmere was remodeled into a stylish suit, and then, to everybody's astonishment, Aunt Hannah produced the desired number of yards of excellent black silk, and a handsome gown of that material was forthcoming. The two, with lace in the neck and sleeves, which last was a gift for Mrs. Remington, were hung in Mrs. Brewster's closet. While all this went on, there were sewing-bees in Aunt Hannah's large old parlor, 
with good cheer that drew the hearts of the people together. They made shirts for the boys, and did all the odd jobs of sewing that had accumulated for months on Mrs. Brewster's tired hands. To put the climax upon her kind deeds, Mrs. Adams took possession of the four boys and gave them a good time on the farm while the father and mother were away. Since that time no tongue had ever moved against Mr. Brewster. His people declared, when he returned, that he was ten years younger, and that his sermons were better than ever. So, considering all things, Aunt Hannah had decided to go. No preparation was needed. Her clothes were always in order. She had never considered it one of the virtues to go shabbily dressed, and was not without her best and her second-best gowns made of good material and with taste. When they needed making over, they were bestowed upon someone who was thankful for them. Thereby Mrs. Adams had no garments treasured up for moth to corrupt. And so, although the fashion of her bonnet and the cut of her gown were slightly quaint, there was, nevertheless, an unmistakable air of respectability and dignity about her. Martha, when she met her at the station, noticed this, as well as that she carried herself in an erect way for one of her years, and had not at all the look of the typical country relative. Aunt Hannah had not visited a large city many times in her life, and it seemed to her like a never-ending panorama or continuous world's fair. Her keen observation took it all in, and she was, by turns, admiring, pitiful, amused, and indignant. "'How would you like it, Aunt Hannah?' John asked, after she had been with them a few days, to spend your life in a city. "'I wouldn't choose it,' Aunt Hannah replied emphatically. "'I should like more elbow room.' I shouldn't like to be in danger of making the mistake of going into Mrs. Smith's house when I got home from downtown and sitting down to her supper table and thinking it was mine. I don't see how you know your own house here, or know yourself from anybody else. It is well enough in winter, but how I pity the poor creatures who have to stay here all summer. I stood on the steps this morning and looked up and down the long street and tried to think how it would be in July, with nothing but brick and stone as far as you can see, not a spear of grass, not a breath of air. I should think they would suffocate. And there are the very poor, who maybe were brought up in green fields. It makes me shudder to think of it. I'll remember to pray for them after this. And for that, said John, nobody can tell what blessings may come to some weary soul in one of those streets. Some types of character, new to her, Aunt Hannah met for the first time in the church receptions, which were held fortnightly. She knew, for certainty, after a little, that all the queer people did not live in Mableton. The sort of person she understood least was the one that had no interest in people unless they were rich or distinguished. The minister's wife noticed one evening, with vexation, that dear Aunt Hannah was seated between two ladies of this stamp. They looked her over in a supercilious way after they had been introduced by the pastor, and then ignored her, conversing with each other across her. Their airs, however, were lost on that unsuspecting woman. She was so accustomed to being honored that she was not on the lookout for slights. She leaned back in her chair, quite content, listening to the conversation. "'I feel very weary this evening,' Mrs. Delancey remarked to Mrs. St. Clair, as she suppressed a yawn. "'I was up with Floy the greater part of the night.' "'Ah, indeed. What was the matter?' "'Why, Floy almost had the croup. She breathed terribly.' I was very much frightened, but I placed her in a hot bath and put mustard on her throat. Then I wrapped her up warm in blankets and gave her mustard every hour. Floy has not been a bit well lately. I think she has eaten too much cake and ice cream and put her system out of order. But she is so fond of it I can't bear to deny her. 
and then I think she took a little cold yesterday. We went for a drive. I did not intend to take Floy, but she teased to go in such a sweet way when she saw me put on my hat that I could not resist. Is your child better today, ma'am? Aunt Hannah asked. Mrs. Delancey elevated her eyebrows in surprise and said in freezing tones, You must have been misinformed, madam. My child has not been ill. Then turned again to Mrs. St. Clair. You have no idea what a lovely present Floy received yesterday. Alexandrina Wetherington sent her a lovely blanket, sky-blue plush, embroidered with gold braid, with her monogram in scarlet in one corner. It's a perfectly elegant thing. I'm in haste to take her out for an airing so she can display it. How lovely, Mrs. St. Clair murmured. That reminds me to tell you that Claude brought a beautiful collar for Bernard. It is hammered silver, and his name, Bernard, is in German text letters. It has a silver chain, and is really quite a unique thing. It was made to order, and so there is not another like it in the city. Mrs. Delancey was mentally resolving to see that collar at the earliest opportunity, and have one manufactured that would far outshine it. Bernard is getting to be such a sad rogue. Let me tell you what he did yesterday. My hat had just come home from Madame Oliver's, and I had left it on my bed while I went down to dinner. I thought Bernard was in the nursery. When I went back upstairs, what a sight did I behold! My elegant hat! It was brown, trimmed with lovely little brown birds, was torn into shreds and strewn all over the floor. The birds were utterly ruined and the feathers flying in every direction. And there was Bernard, frolicking about in a great glee. He ran under the bed as soon as he saw me. I was so overcome I just dropped down and cried. I was very angry at Bernard at first. I thought I should give him a good whipping, but the dear little fellow was so cunning I hadn't the heart to do it. He came up and got in my lap and kissed me so prettily that my heart just melted. I know just how you felt, the other lady said sympathetically. Floyd jumped up on a light stand the other day and knocked down a lovely vase. It was shivered to fragments. The poor creature just trembled with fright and looked up at me with her great soft eyes. I couldn't find it in my heart to punish her. And don't you think, she has the queerest fancies. She will not take her afternoon nap unless she can lie on my bed. I put her in her own little bed and tuck the blanket and spread about her, and next thing I know she lies right in the middle of mine, looking quite happy, and then I think, poor creature, she hasn't many pleasures. If she likes that best, do let her have it. It's the same way with Bernard. Only he fancies for his dormitory my handsomest large plush rocker in the parlor. He never misses an opportunity to secure it, if possible. Another queer freak of his is to sit on the piano, and he has the most ingenious way of getting there. He climbs up on a chair, then to a table, and from that to the piano, and there he sits and surveys himself in the mirror opposite. He takes such a magnificent pose, and is so immovable, really he looks, with his peculiar tawny skin, like one of those bronze pieces. Oh, he is so entertaining. I don't know what we would do without him. And, as we have no children, he rather takes the place of a child. A house is so dull, don't you know, without something to amuse one, and really a pet of that sort is in some ways more satisfying than a child. And now Aunt Hannah was mystified. If these creatures of extraordinary behavior, who wore blankets and collars and chains and sat on pianos, were not children, what were they? Actually, they were dogs. The next few words settled it. 
"'Yes, indeed that is so,' Mrs. Delancey replied. "'They are great comforts, but there is a great deal of anxiety connected with them, after all, I suppose,' with a deep sigh. "'There is in everything this side of heaven. I am so anxious about Floy this minute I can scarcely wait for refreshment so that I can go home. I am always thankful when I see poor, forlorn little dogs on the street, half-starved, wretched-looking things, that dear little Floy has such a good home.' She has never wanted for anything. Last summer, said Mrs. St. Clair, when we were in the country, there was a poor dog that nobody would own. It had lost its master. Everybody stoned it, and nobody said a kind word to it, and the other dogs fought it. A man who lived near us suggested shooting him. Think what a brute! One day, when it was being persecuted, I just picked it up in my arms and carried it home. I had to walk half a mile, and it gave me a terrible pain in my back. I was ill for a week from overdoing, but I felt that it was in a good cause. I kept him for two weeks and nursed him up. I don't suppose that poor dog has ever tasted beefsteak before. He seemed so glad to get it, and he was so grateful for everything that was done for him. I succeeded in finding him a good home with a farmer. "'You are a heroine,' said Mrs. Delancey. "'It was a noble act,' and you will be rewarded for it. Do you know, I tell my husband that if I die first, I want a large portion of what belongs to me appropriated to building a home for poor homeless dogs and cats that wander about and are abused. Precisely, Mrs. St. Clair declared. I feel the same way myself. I have always had the deepest sympathy for the poor creatures. Aunt Hannah had felt the rebuff administered to her and had kept silence. But as the talk went on, she forgot it again, in her amazement, that there could be two such foolish women in the world. And so, to their surprise, the next remark came from her, spoken because she could not longer hold her peace. I shall not leave my money to found a home for dogs and cats until all the homeless, hungry little children are provided for. I think our Heavenly Father intends that we shall be kind to His dumb creatures, but when we go to putting them in the place of beings made in His own image— it is another matter, and not pleasing to him. I have seen a good many half-starved little children wandering about the streets just the little time that I have been here. Did you ever try nursing up any of them? I should think it would pay better. It is enough to make a body's heart ache to walk about this city and see saloons in every other building, and watch the streams of men going in and out, and remember that most of them have wives and children. Oh, how many little ones have gone to bed without their suppers tonight, and are shivering this very minute because the covers are too thin? Can you tell me whether there is anything being done for them? The two ladies stared in silence, with that hateful manner which some people know how to affect when they wish to be superlatively rude and disagreeable. Then Mrs. Delancey arose and shook out her skirts, saying, My good woman, you will have to apply to other quarters if you wish to know about these matters, Probably our pastor can tell you. He seems to know a good deal about that sort of people. As for myself, I have always kept as far from such low, vile creatures as possible. Then the two sailed away and left Aunt Hannah in as high state of perturbation as she had ever allowed herself to reach. A coarse, impertinent old woman, Mrs. St. Clair murmured. I always thought Mr. Remington came of a low-lived family. Money, indeed! She looks as though she hadn't money enough to build a home for a mouse. And then they both laughed, and the minister had two more enemies. 
A young lady standing near heard the closing words of this conversation, and her eyes flashed, the anger and contempt which Aunt Hannah would not allow hers to indulge in. These were both young eyes, though, and had not learned as yet to observe the rule of a love that suffereth long and is kind. It was an intense face which turned itself to Aunt Hannah, a bright spot flaming in each cheek, and her form, slight and tall, drawn up in a queenly way. "'Mrs. Adams, please let me introduce myself to you,' she said. "'I am Fern Redpath, and I know you are the dear aunt whom Mrs. Remington told me she expected. I have been away for a few weeks, or I should have known you before. I unintentionally heard a part of the conversation just now, and am indignant that one like you should have been so insulted. How can you bear it so calmly?' "'Never mind,' Aunt Hannah said, smiling. "'It takes all sorts of people to make a world, "'and I suppose I seem as queer to them as they do to me. "'I dare say you can tell me something of what I asked them. "'What is being done here to stop this horrible rum business?' "'Aunt Hannah knew she had found the right person to answer such a question, "'for Miss Redpath, a girl of fine mind, "'of brilliant attainments and vigorous health, "'had thrown all these gifts at the feet of her master.' and chosen her career to fight wrong in the shape of rum as truly as any reformer of old. Because she moved in a high circle, of unquestioned influence, her work was all the more effective. Perhaps more effective, too, with some, because she also brought to it youth, ardor, and unusual attractiveness. She sat down by Aunt Hannah and told her with enthusiasm about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, what they were doing and what they hoped to do. She told of the gospel temperance meetings, the new coffee-rooms for men, the home just opened for young girls, and the free kindergarten for little children. "'You talk as if you had been at the work for years,' Aunt Hannah said. "'But you are not very old.' "'Not very. I have only been in it since I left school, a couple of years.' "'I should like to know how you happen to give yourself up to it so. You don't appear like one who grew up in it. It must be quite a story. Do you mind telling me?' Aunt Hannah said." after they had talked long enough to feel well acquainted. "'It's a very short story, Mrs. Adams. I went into the work for very shame, when I saw the enormity of the drink curse, and how some who should teach better things are helping it along. I have two brothers, and I awakened to find them in danger. The habit of drinking had become firmly fixed before I dreamed of such a thing. Father died when we were young, but they were doing well until they came under the influence of a certain minister in the city where they lived.' He is a fine preacher. They admired him very much, but he holds peculiar views on the temperance question and does not scruple to advocate them openly. He teaches that one may drink beer or wine just as he drinks tea or coffee and must control the appetite for all of them. My brothers did not find that an easy thing to do. They were on the verge of ruin, but they were saved by means of the WCTU in that city, and they are now totally abstinence men. After that, I gave myself up more entirely to this work, out of gratitude to God. I still feel anxious about my brothers. It is a life of temptation, and I have temptation, too. It is so hard not to hate that minister who led them astray. I should think so, Aunt Hannah said with vehemence. I am not sure but that it is righteous indignation. Is he partly idiotic, or is he a bad man? Neither. He is a good man in every other way, very much beloved, and is quite scholarly. That is the strange part of it. He ought to know better. He isn't an evangelical minister? Oh, yes, he is Dr. Carter. I presume you have often seen his name in the papers? Humph, 
said Aunt Hannah. Then after a pause, it must be a case of the devil taking possession of a good man to accomplish his purpose, and he couldn't find a cunninger way to do it in this case now, could he? There were such instances in Bible times, and there is more of it now than we think, I guess. But now Elsie Chilton was singing, and that was usually a sign for conversation to cease. Let us go near, Miss Redpath said. She will no doubt sing something that you like. There is a most remarkable change in her. Even her songs are different. Doesn't she look more like a beautiful lily than ever with her white gown, her golden hair, and her yellow sash? The likeness is quite striking. End of chapter 18